I have been out for a, a few weeks. Um, you know, I had the most amazing trip to um, Japan. You know, I think most of you know that I'm half Japanese and I've got many, many stories there, but, but we've got a text today that's gonna require such attention. I'm gonna hold some of those stories for later, but you'll hear about it. Uh, you'll hear about it in the, in, in the year to come, uh, some of what happened in that. You know, one of the things we do do during the summer months is we, at, at both Franklin and at our Brentwood campus, we do, uh, we, we block out four weeks for an equipping series. And so we have the great privilege here of having uh, Dr. Rubel Shelley, a dear friend, to, to help us grasp and really help us rest in the trustworthiness of the scripture. Did an amazing job. Um, our, our worship pastor, Carl Carty, was at Brentwood, just so you know, for four weeks. And Carl did a series on the heart of worship. Again, an amazing, amazing job. Today, we're gonna dive back into John. So see, we paused John some five weeks ago. And now we're stepping right back into our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. If you're a guest, maybe this is your first, second time, please know this is what we primarily what we do. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse. We're about halfway through John. So open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're in verses 22 to 42. And so I know this takes a little effort, but we'll have to reach back to remember what Rob taught when he taught those first 21 verses, because that's the context for our verses today. Uh, In terms of a timestamp, okay, when we pick up these verses today, know that three months have passed since Rob last finished verse 21, okay? So in in the time in the story, three months have passed, but there's continuity because, (coughs) excuse me, in those passages that Rob taught, we picked up two more of Jesus's I am statements. Seven signs in John's gospel, seven I am statements, all pointing to the identity of Jesus, his words in his work. What Rob covered in the last section, uh, he explained, Jesus says, I am the door, right, to this sheet pen. And then he said, I am the good shepherd. So so I I need to get our minds in that sheep motif. And and Rob explained that when he said, I am the door, you know, the, the sheep, uh, herders, shepherds would, would put their sheep in a pen at night for safety. And this is so key, <clears throat> might be five or six shepherds with all their different sheep in there. They're all just mixed and mingled. There's only one door in and out. Jesus says, I'm that door. And then he says, I'm the good shepherd. And he contrasts that with the hireling. And the idea there being, you know, the hireling, when, when the devil comes to snatch one of the sheep, the, the hireling, that shepherd who, he, he doesn't own the sheep. It's like, uh, it's not worth it to me. <laughs> you know, and he steps back, right? And lets the sheep die. Whereas we know the good shepherd, what does he do? <clears throat> he will lay down his life for the sheep. Now we're gonna see this in our text today. Though it's been three months, Jesus continues the sheep and the shepherd metaphor. And I think he does so because it obviously fits his purpose, his purpose as he talks about one of the most treasured doctrines of the faith. It's, uh, it's foundational, that's why it's a doctrine. Um, it's life-giving. It will transform your walk with Christ. But it is also, 
one of the more controversial, uh, debated, <coughs> excuse me, often troubling doctrines of the faith. What I'm talking about is what, we, we know it under different terms perhaps, but <clears throat> eternal security uh, also, and, 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 and the, you know, from a more of a reformed tradition, I like this, is the perseverance of the saints. Um, it's the question that this doctrine seeks to answer is, is pr- pretty simple. Can someone who genuinely puts their trust in Christ at a moment in time, can that person <clears throat> somehow over time come to a place where they lose that salvation that was secured at this point in time? Can they walk away from that? Can they, in other words, can they lose their salvation? Everybody with me? <clears throat> it's often, you know, that phrase, you know, once saved, always saved. You know, is that, is that true? What you believe about this has, has ramifications for how you live out your faith. It's the difference between living um, with, with your faith, with a, with a resting faith, versus a striving faith. It's the difference between a faith that is an assured confidence or a faith that that could be riddled with this low-grade anxiety. Maybe not, I wonder if, maybe I've done. Think with me for a moment about the status of your eternal security. Uh, were you to to die, you know, if you you know you're going to walk out of church here in, you know, some <clears throat> 30, 30 minutes or so. If you were to die before you open the door to your car, you know, heart attack, aneurysm, whatever it may be, how confident are you that <clears throat> in that moment that you would be immediately in the presence of Jesus forever? Think about it. <clears throat> now, I'm sure there's someone in the room that's, <clears throat> that's going, well, thank goodness I just went to church. I'm good. <laughs> you know, like that was, that was a good, good timing on my part here. <clears throat> and uh, it's a bit of a giggle on that, but I, but I think that, that it actually betrays a misunderstanding of eternal security. That uh, my eternal security is secure as I can make it. Go to church, I'm gonna do the right thing, not do the wrong thing. And I think that's a fatal error. I'm gonna say two things before we dive into this. First, genuine Christians, some of you in the room, it's okay uh, Christ followers are gonna disagree with what I'm gonna say in the same way I could disagree with where you are. You know what I'm saying? It's so within the body, this is one of those doctrines. We can, dis, we can agree to disagree on it. It's, it's okay. Um, secondly, the verses I wanna say that we're looking at are like the Mount Everest of eternal security. Uh, it's just like they rise up way up there, clearly to see. And I describe it this way because there are lesser mountains and lesser hills, 
that, that there are passages in our Bible that, are, that you'd go, well, that, that, that doesn't sound, that, that sounds different than what you're teaching, Lloyd. And I will say this, yes, they do. And <clears throat> not to diminish them at all, not to diminish them at all, because we've got to take the whole scripture. But I, I want us to understand that I, I believe these verses are particularly clear and compelling. And, and, and many of the other verses, not all, but many, they, they're a bit obscure. And we gotta keep in mind that in Bible study, the clear interprets the obscure. Even with that said, please hear me, we can agree to disagree on this. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit, who is truly our teacher, I mean this, is gonna give us some measure of clarity this morning, and not just a tiny bit, but I trust a deep and abiding clarity, a life-transforming, a faith-shaping clarity because these words that we study are some of the clearest on eternal security in the Bible. And they come straight from Jesus's words himself. Now, we've got 22 to 42 to cover, but I'm gonna do something a little different because the weight of the first part of the passage is what kicks off the argument and the response of the second part. And so I want us to look at the back end of the text first, then we're gonna come around so that we can end and spend most of our time on the front end. I wanna look at the response of the religious leaders to the words that Jesus says. What are the words that kind of set them off? And you're gonna see they're set off as we look at this. So start actually with verse 31, okay? So Jesus has said something, and we're now looking at the response of the religious leaders, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. <clears throat> Okie dokie, you know, he has said something to provoke them. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we are <clears throat> going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, God's speaking, I said, you are God's. He's quoting Psalm, uh, uh, Psalm 82. <clears throat> if he called them God's to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because, because I said, I am the son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign Everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. When people make the claim that Jesus was a prophet, he was a good prophet. I mean, you know what? No, 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 let me take it back. He's one of the greatest prophets ever. When people make the claim Jesus was an amazing teacher, let me take that. I think I'll give it to you. He was the greatest teacher. But they leave it there. Um, Those are two categories that don't, don't apply to Jesus per se. It's not what he said of himself. We've been in John, so you guys know this. Jesus, Jesus makes clear that 
he is God in the flesh. Y'all, there's no religion in the history of the world wherein the founder of that religion says, I am God. Uh, Jesus stands alone. There's no founder of religion anywhere in the world, by the way, we'll get here later, but that rose from the grave. I'm just saying Jesus stands alone. And and so so when someone says to you, and I'm trying to say to you, be thinking of this, when someone says to you, well, well, Jesus was, yeah, he was a a good prophet, but so was so-and-so, et cetera, et cetera. You gotta stop and say, wait, wait, wait. Even his enemies, they didn't hear, they didn't misread Jesus. (laughs) They clearly looked at him and said, you being a man, you're claiming to be God. So they understood Jesus perfectly. Jesus argues with them uh, with the scripture. Again, beautiful, because they believe the scripture. So he goes, look, you're upset with me saying I'm the son of God, but don't you remember in Psalm 82, six? In that Psalm, the Psalmist is speaking and and it's speaking of God's word coming to the leaders. God's word coming to the leaders of Israel. His word comes to them and then they're to take that word and judge righteously the nation. And God is speaking, this is God's voice in the Psalm speaking. And God says to those religious leaders who the word comes to, he says, you are God's. It may shock you, but God says that of them, that those who receive that word, he says, you are God's. And so Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If, If God said these religious leaders are God's, why do you have trouble with me saying, I'm the son of God because I'm the one sent from God, i.e., and we know this, I'm the word of God. You see that? So arguing from lesser to greater. I'm gonna come back to verses 37 and 38 in a minute. I wanna wanna jump forward right now and grab the first part of these verses, then we'll come back to those because 37 and 38 have an important message to us when we wrestle with this doctrine. So go back to 22 now. Now, here's what prompted all this response. Let's start with 22 to 24. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I'm not gonna go deep into this, but note the feast of dedication would be that feast. It's not a biblical feast from the Old Testament. It happened in the intertestamental period Uh, Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanes overruns Jerusalem. He slaughters a pig on the altar. It's awful. 167 BC, 164 BC, uh, Judas Maccabeus leads a guerrilla revolt, you know, crushes the Syrian king, (coughs) reestablishes temple worship. And for eight days, they celebrate. So you, gotta kind of, you kind of have this thought in your, you got this picture in your mind. It's, it's patriotism day, you know, season there in Jerusalem. It says the Jews gathered around him. The Greek here carries the idea. Listen, they encircled him. That's a little different from they gathered around him for a conversation. No, they, they encircled him because they weren't looking for just an answer. They were looking for him to say that by which they could use against him. 
They hemmed him in is the idea. Verse 25 and 26, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He says, I told you. Now, to be fair to them, you know, in the, in, the, in the gospel up to this point, he's only said explicitly to one person, it was in private to the Samaritan woman when she said, when the Messiah comes and he looked at her and said, I am he. It's the only time. So to be clear, you know, he was a bit oblique, but we do know he said things that only Messiah could say, I and the father are one. He's done things that only Messiah could do. You see what I'm saying? So yes, he has told them. <clears throat> which actually relates, let me say this. Why didn't he just look at them right then, right then and there and say, I am the Messiah. In part, what did I just say about the Feast of Dedication? It's patriotism is running fervent. Their idea of the Messiah who would come is a Messiah like Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. So you see what I'm saying? So if he said that, they're gonna go, well, he's here, take out your swords, let's go. Do you see what I'm saying? So, so he, he, he was oblique because it was gonna be on his timing, right? Because he was headed for the cross. Verse 26 is so key. I wanna read it again. Look at it with me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. <clears throat> and we are getting ready to step into it right here. Everything in us, I think, or, or maybe wants to look at that sentence and go, well, <clears throat> what he meant was, because you don't believe, you're not my sheep. But this is not a textual variant at all. He said, you are not my sheep. <laughs> he said, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. This means in order, you know, we take this, this means in order to believe, one must first be one of Jesus's sheep. And, and, and I know your brains are going, what? Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're creaking right now and questions are popping up and they should. Let me say this as we move through this. Our inability to put some things together, which we're gonna look at here in our, in our minds, we gotta remember um, we're, we're engaging an infinite holy God with a finite and fallen mind. And it's tough. But our inability to hold what God says is true, two things he's gonna say is true. Our inability to hold it has no bearing on whether it's true or not. We're simply gotta take the scripture as it's given to us. We don't throw out our intellect or our reasoning, but we submit humbly to know God. God does reveal what's true and we trust it because we trust him. Look at verse 27, we get the other side. He says, you know, my sheep, if you're, if you're one of my sheep, my sheep hear my voice and I know them, i.e., 
I know them intimately. There's a relationship. And they follow me. Then in verses 28 to 30, he says at least six things. There may be more, but I'm gonna gonna name six. Promise truths or realities that keep his sheep secure. Okay, so if you're one of his sheep, this is what Jesus is gonna say about your security in him all the time, all the way to the end, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I'm just gonna list these six things. I'll comment on them. First thing, if you are one of Jesus' sheep, he gives us eternal life. Eternal, yes, as in never-ending. Jesus also says this is eternal life that you may know the Father. So eternal as in right now. Eternal life life begins the moment you place your faith in Christ because you're now in relationship, fellowship with the Father, experiencing a quality of life, eternal life. And yes, it is a life that goes on and has no end. Then he says, secondly, he promises we will never perish. I mean, you could sit on the eternal life part and go, how is it that you could have eternal life and then not have eternal life? It's eternal. But then he goes on to say, he promises we'll never perish. Uh, Wayne Grudem helps us here with the Greek. He says, quote, the Greek construction is is especially emphatic and, and might be translated more explicitly, quote, and they shall certainly not perish forever. It's like, no, not never. (laughs) The idea being never destroyed, never ruined, never lost. So third thing he says, he says, we are in Jesus's hand and will never be snatched from his hand. This metaphor of a hand in the Bible, the hand of God is, is the image of power, strength, and might. Exodus 13, by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place with the power of his mighty hand. The Lord brought us out of Egypt. Psalm 144, seven, stretch out your mighty hand from on high and rescue me and deliver me from the many waters. In this context, I want you to think about <clears throat> Rob's message when he talked about the, the sheep in the pen and, and the, the, that you know, if wolves come to snatch one of the, sh- the sheep, it's the same word here, that nothing can snatch one of my sheep from my hand. Fourth, <clears throat> he says, we were, Jesus' sheep were given to Jesus by God the Father. You gotta think about this. So we often say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm one of Jesus' sheep because I've put my trust in Christ. So I, well, he says that actually you were given to Jesus 
by God the Father. God the Father gave you to Jesus. When did the Father give Jesus his sheep? Was it the moment you believe? In other words, you're not his sheep, but then you believe and now I'm one of his sheep. Seems to me that verse 26 tells us Jesus' sheep are his sheep before they ever exercise belief. How, how can that be? And by the way, <clears throat> I did get a note last week. Someone, I, I don't know, somewhere in the way, they, they, they kind of felt like I was teaching universalism that everyone's saved. I'm not saying that. Paul sheds light on this. We've studied this at least twice. Ephesians 1, excuse me, he says, all praise to God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Even before he made the world. Oh my. You know, the difficulty of a doctrine of eternal security has just run into the difficulty of the doctrine of election. And the reason being is they're inseparable. Now, I could spend the rest of the message and many, many more messages trying to unpack election, but. And it's trying to be simple in in keeping to this particular text. It is what Paul just said that, yes, before the foundation of the world, God elected those, a people for himself. And in time, he would bring them to himself. And there's so many questions that can arise from that, certainly. And one would be, I mean, what, what was God thinking? Well, here's what God was thinking according to Ephesians 1. It says it was according to the purpose of his will. He was thinking about his will, which is, Paul says, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all for God's glory. He is glorified in all things. Let Let me lower this down to a place where we can get hold of it, even if it's hard to hold. What makes you, what ultimately makes you one of his sheep? We believe the scripture teaches <clears throat> this is so, this is tricky, but ultimately, it, ultimately it's not your belief, but God's choice of you before the foundation of the world. But your belief matters. And then in, before the foundation of the world, but then in space and time, you see, we believe in all the benefits and the blessings of being his sheep, you see, are applied to us and appropriated by faith. Belief matters. So this means our, our eternal security is theologically secured when God gave you to Jesus and experientially applied when you first believe. Yes, when you believe. And the implications, if 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 we understand this, the implications on eternal security are mind-blowing. 
It's like, how much more secure can you get? You can't. It puts our eternal security in God's hands, which actually is the next point. Number five, we are also in the Father's hands and will never be snatched from his hand. And Jesus makes a comment that we think is obvious, but he obviously needs us to hear it again. No one is greater than the Father. There exists no greater power than the power of God the Father. We are double held by the hand of Jesus, whose hand is in the Father's hand. And it says, no one can snatch anyone from the Father's hand. I mean, just now here's, here's where we can tend to go. I can too, is we can come up with an illustrate. We can come up with, yeah, but so-and-so, I know so-and-so. Let's stay away from that for a moment. I'm sure there are individual things that there's reasons, et cetera. But if we stand here, when, what we can do is we can go, okay, I get all that. We're secure. But Lloyd, what about me? I can reject it, though I believed when I was 12. Look, I'm rejecting him now. I can, I, can, I, can rege- I can reject what I believe. I can turn back on that. And I'm not gonna argue that point. I'll only say this, that for the person who genuinely believed and was born again and all that happens in salvation, the indwelling of the spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the clothing in righteousness, the security that Jesus speaks of, of those who are truly his. If you say that, well, yeah, no one can snatch anyone from the Father's hand, but I can, then you gotta stop and go, stay with the metaphor. So, so you're saying you're more powerful than Jesus' hand. You see what I'm saying? You gotta say you're more powerful than the Father's hand on Jesus. Jesus says no one, just because he didn't include, including you, he didn't need to say that. He said no one, and he said it twice. Then he ends with the sixth point and says this, Jesus and the Father are one. Here's the mystery of the triunity of God. Clearly, Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. And the sentence would make no sense. They are distinct in personhood. They are one in essence. Bible scholars note that the the one here is neuter, which, which means this, simply means this. This particular text, yes, it reinforces the oneness of the Father and Son, but the emphasis Jesus has in this text is not oneness of essence, it's oneness of purpose. I and the Father are one in our purpose. The unanimity of myself and my Father, the unity of the Father and the Son <clears throat> to bring about their purposes and plans. It's one purpose and it's one plan. And in this context, that purpose and plan is to bring his sheep home. And the Father and I are in one accord to bring them home. Go back to John 6, 38, 40, he says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of who he gives me. I will lose no sheep. These are not my words. These are not John Calvin's words. Uh, these are Jesus's words. <clears throat> and yes, yes, please hear me again, because I know some of you are, are, are gonna wrestle with this and that's good. <clears throat> and it's okay, we can disagree. And yes, there are other verses that go, wait a minute, you gotta take this. Yes, you do, but I'm gonna, we're gonna sit with Jesus, the clarity of Jesus's words this morning. <clears throat> Perhaps the biggest objection or one of the biggest ones 
to eternal security is understood this way <clears throat> might be this. Maybe you're thinking it. <clears throat> well, then how is an invitation, a genuine invitation to all? How, how can that be if, if it's been rigged from the beginning, so to speak? That's a, that's a, that's a very valid <clears throat> question. If God has chosen you know, the elect from before the foundation of the world, then how, is it, how can it be an honest invitation to all when all are not elect? I do not know. And, and, and I don't mean that to slough it off or even to be silly. I really don't, I, I don't know. <clears throat> but what I do know is the scripture tells us both of these things are true, that the choice is real and you gotta be responsible and you must believe and God from before the foundation of the world has <laughs> chosen his people for himself. And the Bible just takes these two and holds them right there. And my little pea brain can't hold it like God does, but I also can't ignore what I believe the scripture teaches. The Bible says the invitation is real and one must choose. And the Bible says God is sovereign in salvation, which is why I wanted to say verses 37 and 38 to end on. Look over at 37 and 38. Jesus has just looked at these leaders and he said to them, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. But notice what he continues to say to them in 37 and 38. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. That's a profound statement in and of itself. Jesus says, don't believe me if I'm not doing the works of the father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Why? That you may know and understand that the father is in me and that I am in the father. Do you see what Jesus has just done there? He's just invited them to believe. He didn't look at them and say, "Uh, you're not elect, so I need to leave right now and I'm sorry. That's never what he would say and it's never ever what he instructs us to say. He calls us to tell everyone, everyone genuinely believe in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in his life, death and resurrection. There's no question of election, non-election. It's a question of, will you believe? That's the offer. And may I say to you in the room and online, the offer's there right now to you today. It does not do for you to fold your arms and go, but maybe I'm not elect. That, that, That is not biblical. The invitation is real and you're responsible to choose. Believe that what Jesus did, he did for you. And the fact that you're hearing the message is an indication that God is inviting you to put your trust in him. Speaking on our need to hold this tension, the Bible's clear insistence on human responsibility and divine sovereignty I found these words from uh, Alistair Begg to be helpful. I'll just put them on the screen. He writes this, to deny either one is foolishness. To harmonize them in time with a finite mind is impossible. To bow before the mystery and trust upon God's, trust upon God is peace and liberty. 
If I summarize the message and we'll end here, I would offer these two summary statements. If you saved yourself, then your security depends on you. If God saved you, I'm speaking in the ultimate senses. If God saved you, then your security depends on God. And may I say, Jesus, I believe in this passage and other places, makes that security impenetrable, sure, and certain. Let me invite you to bow your heads. Our application this morning, I'm gonna invite you to simply pray. And if you've never put your trust in Christ today, today could be that day. Tell God that you've put your trust in Jesus, that you believe he died on the cross for your sin and rose again, that he did it for you. I know there are many in the room who've put their trust in Christ, but maybe you've been living with a measure of uncertainty about your eternal destiny. Today's a day to let that uncertainty go because it's not in your hands. It's not your hands that hold you. It's the hand of Jesus and the hand of the Father. Yes, there's more that can be said on this, but this is truly true, and you can trust them. Let's take a moment, and I'll let you have your own quiet conversation with God. Lord, this mystery is great. Holy Spirit, please teach us, help us to grasp the significance of Jesus's words and your word in other places that speak of our confidence that having trusted Christ, we get home. Well, there are challenges, of course, but we get home because of you. And it's all to your glory, not ours. Help us to rest. Help us to know. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Come to the Lord's table with these verses in mind this morning. Take your bread and the cup. If you missed it, it's in the foyer. If you're a guest of ours and you know Jesus, you're welcome to this table. It's his table. And all who've trusted him, he invites to this table. Take the bread out, take the cup, take the top off. And as you do, go ahead and stand. Let's stand together. May I offer this prayer as we receive these elements this morning. Lord Jesus, We understand that 
what God the Father secured before time, you executed in time the means by which we would enter into relationship with you, with him. For you suffered and died on that cross. Your body was broken and we recognize it as we come to this table each week and we say, thank you, Jesus. Receive the bread. blood was poured out. It was not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the precious Son of God, sinless blood. It was your life given. You gave your life that we might never be separated from the Father. You secured for us a right standing, a righteousness we could never achieve on our own, certainly never keep on our own but it is fully ours in you, Lord Jesus. And we proclaim that reality happened at a moment in time in history, the cross, at a moment in time when we believed and we are proclaiming in receiving this cup that you're coming back one day to set all things right. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Receive the cup. The ancients understood the stability of a structure depended upon the strength of the cornerstone. Mandy actually referenced the cornerstone earlier, that it rests on the cornerstone. <laughs> I want to invite you to sing these words about that from a place of being informed by the text. The cornerstone never moves. And here's the thing. We're in it. In Christ, we're in it. And thus our eternity is settled in him forever. And in this we can rejoice.